This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The poem says, Human voices wake us and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. It's sad to notice today that the writings of George Orwell have basically become cliches. People sort of grab little aphorisms, sentences, maybe even, if we're lucky, entire paragraphs from his essays or their novels. And whether you're on the right or on the left, and if you feel that your side or your very person has become aggrieved by something in the culture or in the news, you sort of let everyone know that you're being and thinking very seriously by quoting George Orwell. So what I wanted to share today are three small essays that Orwell wrote uh, during World War II. And it's worth reading these in part because the Orwell that we hear from nowadays, especially if you're only if you're only getting him in sentence or paragraph sized chunks, you're being given an Orwell that basically anyone in America or Europe who hears this, uh, you're being given an Orwell that basically everyone who hears the soundbite will agree with it. It's very hard for someone to find a quote from Orwell that is actually challenging anymore that someone might disagree with. Uh, so it is worth reading a version of Orwell that is hard to imagine now. Not the Orwell, the author of 1984. I think by this point Animal Farm may have appeared, but it uh, wasn't the uh, hadn't, it was it wasn't nearly as popular as it is now. And what we have is another writer appearing in daily newspapers that most people on the left and certainly a good deal of people on the right disagreed with because he did not want to follow anyone's line. And the very first piece is comes from May 19th, 1944, and he is reviewing Vera Britton's pamphlet called Seed of Chaos, her objections to the bombings by the allies of uh, German cities. And for those who know about Vera Britton in World War I, uh, she is the author of the memoir Testament of Youth, which, as far as I'm aware, uh, is basically a huge protest against the war and the folly of it. And this is what Orwell has to say about Vera Britton's thoughts on the bombings of German cities. Miss Vera Britton's pamphlet, Seed of Chaos, is an eloquent attack on the indiscriminate or obliteration bombing. 
Owing to the RAF raids, she says, thousands of helpless and innocent people in German, Italian, and German-occupied cities are being subjected to agonizing forms of death and injury comparable to the worst tortures of the Middle Ages, end quote. Various well-known opponents of bombing, Orwell goes on to say, such as General Franco and Major General Fuller, are brought out in support of this. Miss Britton is not, however, taking the pacifist standpoint. She is willing and anxious to win the war, apparently. She merely wishes us to stick to, quote, legitimate methods of war and abandon civilian bombing, which she fears will blacken our reputation in the eyes of posterity. Her pamphlet is issued by the Bombing Restriction Committee, which has issued other with similar titles. Now, no one in his senses regards bombing or any other operation of war with anything but disgust. On the other hand, no decent person cares a tuppence for the opinion of posterity, and there is something very distasteful in accepting war as an instrument and at the same time wanting to dodge responsibility for its more obviously barbarous features. Pacifism is a tenable position provided that you are willing to take the consequences. But all talk of, quote, limiting or, quote, humanizing war is sheer humbug, based on the fact that the average human being never bothers to examine the catchwords. The catchwords used in this connection are, quote, killing civilians, massacre of women and children, and destruction of our cultural heritage, end quote. It is tacitly assumed that air bombing does more of this kind of thing than ground warfare. When you look at it a bit closer, the first question that strikes you is, why is it worse to kill civilians than soldiers? Obviously, one must not kill children if it is in any way avoidable, but it is only in propaganda pamphlets that every bomb drops on a school or an orphanage. A bomb kills a cross-section of the population, but not quite a representative selection, because the children and expectant mothers are usually the first to be evacuated, and some of the young men will be away in the army. Probably, a disproportionately large number of bomb victims will be middle-aged. Up to date, German bombs have killed between six and 7,000 children in this country. This, I believe, less than the number killed in road accidents in the same period. On the other hand, quote, normal or legitimate warfare picks out and slaughters all the healthiest and bravest of the young male population. Every time a German submarine goes to the bottom, about 50 young men of fine physique and good nerve are suffocated. Yet, people who would hold up their hands at the very words civilian bombing will repeat with satisfaction such phrases as, we are winning the battle of the Atlantic. Heaven knows how many people our blitz on Germany and the occupied countries has killed and will kill, but you can be quite sure it will never come anywhere near the slaughter that has happened on the Russian front. War is not avoidable at this stage of history, and since it has to happen, it does not seem to me a bad thing that others should be killed besides young men. 
I wrote in 1937, quote, Sometimes it is a comfort to me to think that the aeroplane is altering the conditions of war. Perhaps when the next great war comes, we may see that sight unprecedented in all history, a jingo with a bullet hole in him. End quote. We haven't yet seen that. It is perhaps a contradiction in terms, but at any rate, the suffering of this war has been shared out more evenly than that of the last one was. The immunity of the civilian, one of the things that have made war possible, has been shattered. Unlike Miss Britton, I don't regret that. I can't feel that war is, quote, humanized by being confined to the slaughter of young men and that it becomes, quote, barbarous when the old get killed as well. As to international agreements to, quote, limit war, they are never kept when it pays to break them. Long before the last war, the nations had agreed not to use gas, but they used it all the same. This time, they have refrained, merely because gas is comparatively ineffective in a war of movement, while its use against civilian populations would be sure to provoke reprisals in kind. Against an enemy who can't hit back, e.g. the Abyssinians, it is used readily enough. War is of its nature barbarous. It is better to admit that. If we see ourselves as the savages we are, some improvement is possible, or at least thinkable. It's just incredible to me. I can't believe that that was published during the Second World War. The second essay comes from July 14th, 1944, and is in response to letters that Orwell received about what I just read. Orwell says, I have received a number of letters, some of them quite violent ones, attacking me for my remarks on Miss Vera Britton's anti-bombing pamphlet. There are two points that seem to need further comment. First of all, there is the charge, which is becoming quite a common one, that, quote, we started it, i.e. that Britain was the first country to practice systematic bombing of civilians. How anyone can make this claim, with the history of the past dozen years in mind, is almost beyond me. The first act in the present war some hours, if I remember rightly, before any declaration of war passed, was the German bombing of Warsaw. The Germans bombed and shelled the city so intensively that, according to the Poles, at one time 700 fires were raging simultaneously. They made a film of the destruction of Warsaw, which they entitled Baptism of Fire, and sent all around the world with the object of terrorizing neutrals. Several years earlier than this, the Condor Legion, sent to Spain by Hitler, had bombed one Spanish city after another. The silent raids on Barcelona in 1938 killed several thousand people in a couple of days. Earlier than this, the Italians had bombed entirely defenseless Abyssinians and boasted of their exploits as something screamingly funny. Bruno Mussolini wrote newspaper articles in which he described bombed Abyssinians, quote, bursting open like a rose, 
which he said was, quote, most amusing, end quote. And the Japanese, ever since 1931, and intensively since 1937, have been bombing crowded Chinese cities where there are not even any ARP arrangements, let alone any AA guns or fighter aircraft. I am not arguing that two blacks make a white, nor that Britain's record is a particularly good one. In a number of, quote, little wars from about 1920 onwards, the RAF has dropped its bombs on Afghans, Indians, and Arabs who had little or no power of hitting back. But it is simply untruthful to say that large-scale bombing of crowded town areas with the object of causing panic is a British invention. It was the fascist states who started this practice, and so long as the air war went in their favor, they avowed their aims quite clearly. The other thing that needs dealing with is the parrot cry of, quote, killing women and children, end quote. I pointed out before, but evidently it needs repeating, that it is probably somewhat better to kill a cross-section of the population than to kill only the young men. If the figures published by the Germans are true, and we really have killed 1,200,000 civilians in our raids, that loss of life has probably harmed the German race somewhat less than a corresponding loss on the Russian front or in Africa and Italy. Any nation at war will do its best to protect its children, and the number of children killed in raids probably does not correspond to their percentage of the general population. Women cannot be protected to the same extent, but the outcry against killing women, if you accept killing at all, is sheer sentimentality. Why is it worse to kill a woman than a man? The argument usually advanced is that in killing women you are killing the breeders, whereas men can be more easily spared. But this is a fallacy based on the notion that human beings can be bred like animals. The idea behind it is that since one man is capable of fertilizing a very large number of women, just as a prize ram fertilizes thousands of ewes, the loss of male lives is comparatively unimportant. Human beings, however, are not cattle. When the slaughter caused by war leaves a surplus of women, the enormous majority of those women bear no children. Male lives are very nearly as important, biologically, as female ones. In the last war, the British Empire lost nearly a million men killed, of whom about three quarters came from these islands. Most of them will have been under 30. If all those young men had had only one child each, we should now have an extra 750,000 people round about the age of 20. France, which lost much more heavily, never recovered from the slaughter of the last war, and it is doubtful whether Britain has fully recovered either. We can't yet calculate the casualties of the present war, but the last one killed between 10 and 20 million young men. Had it been conducted, as the next one will perhaps be, with flying bombs, rockets, and other long-range weapons which kill old and young, healthy and unhealthy, male and female impartially, it would probably have damaged European civilization 
somewhat less than it did. Contrary to what some of my correspondents seem to think, I have no enthusiasm for air raids, either ours or, or the enemy's. Like a lot of other people in this country, I am growing definitely tired of bombs. But I do object to the hypocrisy of accepting force as an instrument while squealing against this or that individual weapon, or of denouncing war while wanting to preserve the kind of society that makes war inevitable. Again, just stunned that that essay exists and that it was printed in a newspaper. The last one that I would like to share today is called You and the Atom Bomb, and it comes from October 19th, 1945. And I have no idea what to say in response to Orwell, because whatever I say will just uh, minimize, will we'll just be minuscule compared to what he is able to do with words. But I, I don't know of anyone who is able to write about these impossibly difficult questions in the way that he does. And this is what he has to say in 1945 about the atomic bomb. And this is, by the way, uh, just over two months from when they were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Orwell says, Considering how likely we are all to be blown to pieces by it within the next five years, the atomic bomb has not roused so much discussion as might have been expected. The newspapers have published numerous diagrams, not very helpful to the average man, of protons and neutrons doing their stuff. And there has been much reiteration of the useless statements that the bomb, quote, ought to be put under international control, end quote. But curiously little has been said, at any rate in print, about the question that is of most urgent interest to all of us, namely, how difficult are these things to manufacture? Such information as we, that is, the big public, possess on this subject has come to us in a rather indirect way, apropos of President Truman's decision not to hand over certain aspects to the USSR. Some months ago, when the bomb was still only a rumor, there was a widespread belief that splitting the atom was merely a problem for the physicists, and that when they had solved it, a new and devastating weapon would be within reach of almost everybody. At any moment, so the rumor went, some lonely lunatic in a laboratory might blow civilization to smithereens as easily as touching off a firework. Had that been true, the whole trend of history would have been abruptly altered. The distinction between great states and small states would have been wiped out, and the power of the state over the individual would have been greatly weakened. However, it appears from President Truman's remarks and various comments that have been made on them that the bomb is fantastically expensive and that its manufacture demands an enormous industrial effort, such as only three or four countries in the world are capable of making. This point is of cardinal importance, because it may mean that the discovery of the atomic bomb, so far from reversing history, 
will simply intensify the trends which have been apparent for a dozen years past. It is a commonplace that the history of civilization is largely the history of weapons. In particular, the connection between the discovery of gunpowder and the over overthrow of feudalism by the bourgeoisie has been pointed out over and over again. And though I have no doubt exceptions, and though I have no doubt that exceptions can be brought forward, I think the following rule would be found generally true that ages in which the dominant weapon is expensive or difficult to make will tend to be ages of despotism, whereas when the dominant weapon is cheap and simple, the common people have a chance. Thus, for example, tanks, battleships, and bombing planes are inherently tyrannical weapons, while rifles, muskets, longbows, and hand grenades are inherently democratic weapons. A complex weapon makes the strong stronger, while a simple weapon, so long as there is no answer to it, gives claws to the weak. The great age of democracy and of national self-determination was the age of the musket and the rifle. After the invention of the flintlock and before the invention of the percussion cap, the musket was a fairly efficient weapon, and at the same time so simple that it could be produced almost anywhere. Its combination of qualities made possible the success of the American and French revolutions and made a popular insurrection a more serious business than it could be in our own day. After the musket came the breech-loading rifle. This was a comparatively complex thing, but it could still be produced in scores of countries, and it was cheap, easily smuggled, and economical of ammunition. Even the most backward nation could always get a hold of rifles from one source or another, so that the Boers, Bulgars, Abyssinians, Moroccans, even Tibetans, could put up a fight for their independence, sometimes with success. But thereafter, every development in military technique has favored the state as against the individual, and the industrialized country as against the backward one. There are fewer and fewer foci of power. Already in 1939, there were only five states capable of waging war on the grand scale, and now there are only three, and ultimately, perhaps, only two. This trend has been obvious for years, and was pointed out by a few observers even before 1914. The one thing that might reverse it is the discovery of a weapon, or, to put it more broadly, of a method of fighting, not dependent on huge concentrations of industrial plant. From various symptoms, one can infer that the Russians do not yet possess the secret of making the atomic bomb. On the other hand, the consensus of opinion seems to be that they will possess it within a few years. So, we have before us the prospect of two or three monstrous superstates, each possessed of a weapon by which millions of people can be wiped out in a few seconds, dividing the world between them. It has been rather hastily assumed that this means bigger and bloodier wars, and perhaps an actual end to the machine civilization. 
but suppose, and really this is the likeliest development, that the surviving great nations make a tacit agreement never to use the atomic bomb against one another. Suppose they only use it, or the threat of it, against people who are unable to retaliate. In that case, we are back where we were before, the only difference being that power is concentrated in still fewer hands, and that the outlook for subject peoples and oppressed classes is still more hopeless. When James Burnham wrote The Managerial Revolution, it seemed probable to many Americans that the Germans would win the European end of the war, and it was therefore natural to assume that Germany and not Russia would dominate the Eurasian landmass, while Japan would remain master of East Asia. This was a miscalculation, but it does not affect the main argument, for Burnham's geographical picture of the New World has turned out to be correct. More and more obviously, the surface of the earth is being parceled off into three great empires, each self-contained and cut off from contact with the outer world, and each ruled under one disguise or another by a self-elected oligarchy. The haggling as to where the frontiers are to be drawn is still going on, and will continue for some years, and the third of the three superstates, East Asia, dominated by China, is still potential rather than actual. But the general drift is unmistakable, and every scientific discovery of recent years has accelerated it. We were once told that the airplane had, quote, abolished frontiers. Actually, it is only since the airplane became a serious weapon that frontiers have become definitely impassable. The radio was once expected to promote international understanding and cooperation. It has turned out to be a means of insulating one nation from another. The atomic bomb may complete the process by robbing the exploited classes and peoples of all power to revolt, and at the same time putting the possessors of the bomb on a basis of military equality. Unable to conquer one another, they are likely to continue ruling the world between them, and it is difficult to see how the balance can be upset except by slow and unpredictable demographic changes. For 40 or 50 years past, Mr. H.G. Wells and others have been warning us that man is in danger of destroying himself with his own weapons, leaving the ants or some other gregarious species to take over. Anyone who has seen the ruined cities of Germany will find this notion at least thinkable. Nevertheless, looking at the world as a whole, the drift for many decades has been not towards anarchy, but towards the re-imposition of slavery. We may be heading not for general breakdown, but for an epoch as horribly stable as the slave empires of antiquity. James Burnham's theory has been much discussed, but few people have yet considered its ideological implications. That is, the kind of worldview, the kind of beliefs, and the social structure that would probably prevail in a state which was at once unconquerable 
and in a permanent state of, quote, cold war with its neighbors. Had the atomic bomb turned out to be something as cheap and easily manufactured as a bicycle or an alarm clock, it might well have plunged us back into barbarism. But it might, on the other hand, have meant the end of national sovereignty and of the highly centralized police state. If, as this seems to be the case, it is a rare and costly object as difficult to produce as a battleship, it is likelier to put an end to large-scale wars at the cost of prolonging indefinitely a peace that is no peace. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.